Uh, but I love, I love cooking. How many of you like cooking? Raise your hand if you like cooking. Cooking hands. Okay. Okay. Very good. Uh, how many of you are more bakers than you are cooks? And you may say, wait a second, baking is cooking. Sure, but no, baking is, is measuring, preci- precision, following the recipe, and it takes a tremendous amount of skill, because in our family, Carrie's the baker, I'm more of the cooker, so to speak, and Carrie has that sight. She knows just when to pull those chocolate chips out, chocolate chip cookies out of the oven, chef's kiss, fantastic. That takes some skill and some experience, does it not? Amen, thank you, Jesus. Okay, so how many of you are bakers then? Bakers following that recipe to the T, that's you, Okay. You can do that with cooking, too. You can follow a recipe. I don't like doing that. I'm not a fan of doing that. I will Google recipes just like anybody else, and I will hit the, if it doesn't have the, the link that says jump to recipe, I get irrationally irritated. Anyone else where you have to go through their whole journal about how this, you know, sweet potato fry is going to change your life? No, just, just give me to the recipe, and that's fine. And then I'll look at those, I'll look at those instructions, and I'll think, eh, that's a good idea. And I'm sure that I can put some better ingredients in here, some substitutions, some modifications, if you will. And sometimes it ends up great, and that's a home run. Other times, it's not. And poor Carrie, not to keep picking on her, but poor Carrie sits across from me from the table after I've made one of these concoctions with modifications, and I'm like, you know, just sitting there waiting to see her reaction because she reacts to good food. She's like, oh, this is so good. So I'm waiting for it. And if it doesn't happen, it's like World War III at the table. I'm like, well, then the whole, whole meal is ruined. She's like, it's not ruined. It tastes fine. I'm like, don't say it tastes fine. <laughs> it does not taste fine. Poor Carrie. That's a view into our marital moments. Sometimes modifications, they don't end up well especially in cooking. You end up with a dish that can feed you, sure, doesn't satisfy you, doesn't get that craving that you initially sought out to do, and there's nothing worse than that. The other day, I was trying to make a gravy, and we got to the table. I'm like, this is not what I wanted, and I don't know what I've created, but this isn't it. And we enjoyed, we ate the dinner, but I didn't enjoy it once. So then the next day, I made the gravy that I wanted, and we were good to go. So you can get a dish if you modify, but it's not enjoyable. Modifications in life are necessary, though, aren't they? Don't we have to make modifications in life? When something goes wrong, when something doesn't go right, we got to change, you got to adapt, you got to switch it, you got to figure out what the problem is so that you can get it right and, and, and go on and find the correct solution. But not so, my friends, with our faith in Jesus. Not so with our faith in Jesus Christ. Stop there and let that sink. That should be a no-brainer, but as we talk about this today, you might think, wow, actually... I may have been making some modifications and I didn't realize it. You see, the only modifications that come with our faith in Jesus Christ is not in the divine gospel truth of Jesus. No, the modifications come from our behaviors. That's where the modifications come. Not switching out Bible verses and twisting them and and, and omitting some and creating this fabrication of belief that is palatable and that is culturally friendly. That is not what we're called to do. And often we find ourselves guilty of this if we're not being honest with ourselves, or if we are, making modifications about the truth of Christ and what we believe in order to fit in, to blend in, to not rock the boat either in our homes, our workplaces, our families, to continue to do what we want to do. That is a real thing. And if you don't think that is true of you, just take a moment and wait for the world to go around the sun and you'll, you'll, you'll see it. To continue to do what we want to do while still saying out loud that Jesus Christ is Lord, by still coming to church on Sunday, going to a small group, 
by participating in a Sunday school, by even discipling others, and still probably hold on to a modified faith that you've created, whether you realized it or not, and it's leading you down a different way. Where do these modifications come from? Well, they can come from our own desires. We can twist scriptures around and the truth around to fit what we want. It can come from a lack of true comprehension of the scriptures. We need to account for that as well. That's why it's important to open Bibles, to read, and to study. And, and even though when you open up the Old Testament, almost everybody, self-included, is like, you know, you fall asleep. But, I mean, it's true. You need the instruction from there to help us with the real truth. But sometimes these modifications to our faith come from outside sources, outside influences that are mixing in with our faith, practices, ideologies, philosophies, and cultural mandates of the day. This is called syncretism. Say that. Am I pronouncing that right, Larissa? She here? Matt, am I pronouncing that right? They're my pronunciation nerds. Good, because I don't pronunciate very wellers. Okay, so syncretism. What is it? It's a blending of beliefs. It's a blending of beliefs and thoughts and schools of thought, religious beliefs and cultures with your own until you come up with some new mixture. And syncretism has been around for quite some time, since the Old Testament for sure, but even in the Greek and the Roman uh, empires and things like that, that always was happening. As they took over new lands, they had their own gods and there's the people that they took over and there's this mishmash mix of things and they're like, it's okay, just as long as you know you're doing you. We live in a time period where it is often celebrated, if not mandated, my friends, that under the guise of being a decent human being to one another, under the disguise of that, that we have to be fully accepting of others' beliefs as co-equal to our own, that there's many ways to experience the divine truth. Whatever the divine may be, you can decide what the divine may be. Listen to any Hollywood actor or actress, not to pick on them, but they often get famous and then they take on a platitude or a platform and try to espouse uh, some beliefs. And even if you think that they might be Christian, they come really close sometimes, most times, to professing Jesus as the only way. But then they back away from it and they're like, but you know, everyone has their own truth, man, and it's all great and peace, love, and more, all the things. We are to treat others well who are different than us, yes. That is a common human decency. We, as a Jesus mandate, we should be able to dine with, to be kind with, to love others of different genders than us, of different races, of different socioeconomic status, of different political parties, of different sexual orientation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we should be loving and kind and being decent humans to one another because we're all created in the image of God. But that does not mean, my friend that we modify the truth of the divine truth of Jesus Christ, of scriptures. We don't modify that. We don't change that. See, the world wants to redefine kindness. It wants to redefine kindness that in order to be kind, you have to be accepting. That's not, no, I don't see that. And then the world wants to say to, to Christians and others alike that you can't define me. Well, that I can't define you, cool, then you can't redefine the way that I know kindness to be. Okay, And so we make these modifications, we, we mix these things up, and we ch- create this new kind of belief system that isn't, isn't of God at all. It's idol worship. Anytime 
that you create something different to believe in. Even if it's a version of Jesus Christ, it's an idol. And idols are dead, they are lifeless, they are powerless, and they cannot see you through the valleys and the hills that we travel this side of heaven. It won't give you the strength and the peace that you need. Syncretism is a tool of the evil one, plain and simple. It's what he used in the garden to get Adam and Eve to foul up. He whispered into their ears, did God really, did he really say that? And watch what they did. They saw with their own eyes. They created their own value and belief structure on their own. I don't think they were thinking, oh, forget you, God. Eve is reciting back what God is saying. But the synchronistic tool of the devil is to be like, "Mm, are you sure? Surely that's not what he said. Surely you can do it. And she mixes that together and comes up with a new obedience structure, all her own. And it sends us into where we are today. It's a tool that continues to divide us and God and encourages us to have omissions and variations and concessions for the sake of a homogenous blend with one another. God warns Israel in the Old Testament over and over again that when taking over land, as he sends them into foreign places, as he's getting them to the promised land, when they take over these foreign powers, he says, rid the land of it all. Get rid of their people, get rid of their customs, get rid of everything. And as you read that in our culture today, you think, wow, that seems harsh. That doesn't seem right at all. But you have to understand what's happening here. God is using his people as his arm of wrath and judgment for folks, for nations who have denied him, who have rejected him, and they're receiving that form of judgment. That's what judgment is going to look like. But he's also trying to preserve with his people, don't mix those cultural beliefs, those religious beliefs in with you. Don't even attempt to. Don't even get their treasures or covet after things that they have because it's going to get in and it's going to mix in and you're going to create a whole new belief system that isn't of me. He warns them of these things. But Israel, time and time again, they fail to do this. They go, ah, did God really say that? Did he really mean to rid the entire land and they save things and they take on some of the customs and they get things kind of blended in to their own ethos and they have created this whole different belief system that isn't of God and that's where we find Ezekiel today. We're in chapter 6 of Ezekiel and we're in this kind of section 4, 5, 6, and 7 where God has kind of got him in in a valley and he is telling him these sign acts, these illustrations that he is to act out for the Israelites to explain to them that (laughs) it's going to get bad. And so he goes through different ways of how Ezekiel is to demonstrate this out as an illustration so that they get a visual as well as an auditory warning of what's to happen. Last week, he was to lay down on one side and on to the left. I think Bob Bowers said to me, he goes, I want to do what Ezekiel does. Let me, let me sit down for 395 days on my left side and just, you know, help people out. But no, he has Ezekiel lay down on either side and put like an iron griddle in between him and, and the people as like a full separation of, of a cutoff from God and, and that the wrath is coming down. And of course, we saw the good news that Ezekiel is actually also taking on the sins of the people, which is a foreshadow of Jesus. Amen. Thanks be to God. Right? That was last week. This week, I'm going to jump chapter 5 and go into chapter 6, if you will, because really 4, 5, 6, and 7 are all pretty much zeroing in on the same thing, bad, like just, just 
fury come down. You only can say that so many times before you're all going to be like, right? So, so here in chapter 6, we get to the heart of the matter. We get to the, what is the foundational problem of this sin that Israel has? And we, we need to take some lessons from this. Because Israel thinks they know a better way. They've made modifications, omissions, and substitutions, and they've created a belief system that suits their current needs. And the true king of Israel now is no longer allowing this freak of a Frankenstein monster of a religion to continue. And he has taken it out. And through this sign act of Ezekiel, we get the lesson that even though God hates sin and wrath is going to come and judgment is going to come on sin, and even though we have a God who's full of redemption and grace and His love endures forever, that redemption, that regrace, that repentance comes from true belief alone. True belief alone, which means, thought for the day, it matters what you believe. It matters to God and it needs to matter to you what exactly you believe about Jesus Christ, the Holy Trinity, the whole thing. It matters what we believe. So let's jump in. We're going to open up to chapter 6 in Ezekiel, and that's on page 1 something, or no, 8 something, 826. Ezekiel 6, verses 1 through 10. Go ahead and open up your Bibles if you have them and read along with me. Uh, And if you have Bibles that you can write in, you know, underline some things, that's good. If you want to underline in the Pew Bible, I'm not not watching you, so if you just want to feel special, you know, you can do that, that's fine. But here we go, Uh, chapter 6, this is now God speaking to Ezekiel, matters what we believe, and here's why. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel. Underline that, mountains of Israel, of Israel being key. And prophesy against them and say, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills and to the ravines and the valleys. Behold, I, even I will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places. High places being important. Your altar shall become desolate, and your incense altar shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain before your idols. I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the city shall be waste, and the high places ruined, so that your altars will be wasted and ruined, and your idols broken and destroyed, and your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. This Frankenstein of a religion is getting wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. But here, verse 8, yet I will leave some of you alive. That's important. When you have among the nations, some of you escape the sword, and when you scatter through the countries, then those of you who will escape will remember me. You'll remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over there, it's going to get graphic, their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in your own sight for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord, and that I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It just keeps getting better and better. Now, using the word whore, how do I do this, right? So here we are. So what's going on here? 
But God is talking to Ezekiel, and he says to Ezekiel, now I want you to turn your face to the mountains of Israel. Very important. Mountains of Israel. Right now, Israel, you probably can't even recognize it now as Babylon's coming in and taking over and things like that, but God still refers to the mountains of Israel. Those are not going to go to foreign countries. This land is still the land that he is giving and preparing for his people. No other foreign country is going to be able to take that over, even though they think they're all big and bad. He says to Ezekiel, turn to the mountains of Israel. And the mountains are a very special place. This is like the, as the one commentator put it, the par excellence of the Israel kingdom, right? The mountains is where the Ten Commandments come, where God's glory had rested. All the good stuff comes from the mountains. And here comes God saying, I'm going to drive a sword into this. I'm going to take it down. Why? What did they do? They took high places, altars, stone altars that they've built up, that at one point before the temple was built, Israel was able to use those for right worship to God. But once the temple was built, no longer was that allowed. All the worship and sacrifices needed to be happening in the temple. They needed to come into Jerusalem. That's why they have that pilgrimage to come in. Well, as the kingdom split, it became more and more difficult to do those things. And then what folks did is the old habits die hard. And they began to do those worship things out there in those high places. But not to, to Yahweh. No, what they began to do was they began to mix in the worship of the Canaanite gods, Baal and Asherah. And they began to mix these things together in their belief system, taking little bits of of Yahweh and little bits of Baal and whatever they can do to come up with whatever they can that could satisfy their immediate need in that moment. And so God says, I'm going to lay all this to waste because this is cheap. This is cheap worship. And he calls it whoring. In other words, that the, when you get married, that oneness with your spouse, you become one flesh. And what tears that apart is the defilement of the marriage bed, right? It's that adultery. That, that's what tears that union right apart. And God is likening that here. I, you and I, we are together. I with you, my people. And when you cheat on me with other gods like this, it is like playing the prostitute. It is like playing the, this, that bad word, you don't need to celebrate it, right? That's what it's like doing. And so he is broken over this. You've done this, and I'm, gonna, I'm taking it down, is what he said. Did you know that most of the kings of Israel, most of them, I think maybe I'm going to go in my Old Testament survey class, maybe save for what, two kings-ish, kind of? All the rest of them either turned a blind eye to other God worship, engaged in it themselves, or led the people into doing that. Because they looked at Baal and Asherah as these gods who can give them power, victory in war, and fertility. And so they would do rituals and dances around these altars. That's why God says, I'm going to lay these bodies at the altar lifeless. You're going to dance around it? Watch what I can do, right? And they engage in these things so they get those immediate needs right now. And you know why? It's because they are tired of waiting on God. Have you ever been in a valley? Maybe you're in one right now. Cancer, disease, broken families, trauma, whatever it might, might be, you name it, right? And you're in a valley and you know you're in a valley. 
and you're calling out to God, God, please, some sort of reprieve, help me out. And that help doesn't necessarily come, at least not in the way that you're hoping for. And you get tired. And we get tired of waiting on God. Does that mean that God's not faithful? (laughs) No, 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 God is faithful. Does that mean that the Lord doesn't tend to our needs in that valley? He absolutely does, even if we cannot necessarily see it. And how I know that to be true is what I know that to be true in the Scriptures, that God's timing is different than our timing. We operate on minutes and hours. He operates on appointed time. He operates on when it's the right time, at just the right time, of when he is going to to do things and move things in whatever situation that you're in. And so if you're in a valley, that is an opportunity to continue to lean on and trust in God that he is walking beside you and giving you the strength to take each step and each and every day. And it might mean, so sorry, that the relief from this valley is not going to be seen until you go to the other side of heaven. But that means you still walk and you still are faithful, and you still rely on that strength because there's no way you're walking through this valley on your own. And so when we create different gods like Israel did, well, then fine, we're going to go to Baal and Asherah. We're going to get what they promise us, only to find out that what they promise is they can't, that they're not real. And they're in this valley, and no help is here. That's something that we have to understand when we make modifications, that it's a very real human thing to grow weary and grow tired walking with God. And so how do we do that? How do we do that is we, we wait on Him. We wait for Him. We, we sit in our prayers. We surround ourselves with a faithful community, a fellowship of believers who will continue to pray for us and provide for us and walk us through this. And we look for those little glimmers of blessings in the midst, the muck and the mire, and know that He is walking beside us each step of the way. And we wait on the Lord. Ezekiel is dealing with a people who have not done that. They've exchanged it all, and they are trying to get the gift in hand, and it's not working for them. But did you know that Ezekiel is, is, is plagiarizing? He's, he's not coming up on this on his own, and this is not the first time that God has said something to this effect. Everything that we just read here in chapter 6 about the sword going through and laying waste to bodies and the, and the altars and things like that has been said before during Moses' time. And if we turn to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 26, and I'd love for you to journey with me on this. I'm just, I, I need to bring you through Leviticus to make this all thing make sense. Leviticus chapter 26, before Ezekiel, before Isaiah, before Jeremiah, Ezekiel 26 talks about what God wants for His people. He doesn't want them to engage in this lifeless idol worship because he knows what could happen. Listen to what he says in Leviticus. Leviticus 26, you shall not make idols. You shall not make idols. Right there, right out the gate, you know, coming on strong. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. The high places will come down. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And then he says, now if you walk, if you walk, if you wait on me, tarry with me and journey with me, if you walk in my statutes 
and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, in the time. I will give you the rains. I will give you the increase of fruit. I will give you the increase of, of, of the vegetation, of everything that the land is going to yield. I'll give you the increase of, of, of even fertility and multiplication. I'm going to give you all of these things. You walk with me. You follow my commands. You stay with me. All of this is opened to you in its season and in its time. And the world will know that I am the Lord your God and that you are my people and that I've led you out of Egypt, and everything's going to be fantastic. But then here in verse 14, it says, but, uh, sometimes those but words are not always great, right? But if you will not listen to me and will not do these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do any of my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit with panic, and I will lay waste to everything. Everything that I just said was going to be blessings, flip it on an end, and it's now going to work completely against you. And goes on to use the same language that we saw in Ezekiel, that the sword will be unsheathed, that he will scatter them among the nations, that the land will be in desolations, the city will be made waste, that they will run in fear as if enemies are attacking them when no enemies are there that this is what they're going to, to survive in, that he's going to, it says here in Leviticus 26, 14 and following, that God will break the supply of bread, which was last week we talked about that, meaning that they are going to eat and not be satisfied. They are going to continue to be hungry as if they've made a dish with modifications that isn't scratching the craving that they want. And God lays all this down because it matters what we believe. He's saying, if you go that route, if you don't walk with me, and that's repeated in Leviticus, that you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me. It's repeated like three or four times in this passage. If you walk against me, contrary to me, if you don't do those things, you're engaging in idol worship. You're engaging in this false belief structure that isn't of me at all isn't of me at all in any way, shape, or form. And so then when you go to the well looking for power, and victory, and all those things, you're going to find it dry and be lost. He doesn't want that for us. He does not want that for us. This is where Israel goes wrong, and this is where Ezekiel's being called in to say, you've done this for too long. You have made a mockery of the mountains of Israel. You have taken these high places and turned them and profaned them in my sight and in the sight of everybody else. And now it's all going to be gone to waste. But this didn't have to happen. It didn't have to go down this way, but here it comes. Now, we also know the good news, right, that God is a God of redemption and restoration. We know that He is a God that runs alongside the same wrath and judgment with some goodness here. And Ezekiel calls it out. He says that some will be saved. Some will be saved. Now, they're being saved to be in a foreign land with famine and hunger and be loathsome for their conditions. So not a great existence, but saved and that they will, what, remember who I am and that they will know that I am their God. There will be a remnant that is preserved. And here in Leviticus, Leviticus 26, verses 40 and following, it says here that if you confess your iniquity, 
if they confess their iniquity, their sins, of their fathers, their generational sin and their own, their treachery that they've committed against and walking contrary against me, if they do all these things and their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their sins, it says, then I will remember my covenant. I will remember it. But here's even better. Don't miss this. I need you to look at it. Verse 42, chapter 26 in Leviticus, I will remember my covenant with who? With Jacob, with Isaac, and with Abraham. And when I saw this this week, I'm talking goose pimples and throwing the Bible down because I didn't see it before. How many of you have heard in the Old Testament that the sins of the Father passes down from generation to generation? How many of you have ever heard that before, right? And you think, well, that's just awful. At the first service, I said sucks, but I don't think I'm allowed to say that because I told my kids they can't say it, and I said it in a sermon, so I repent. But anyways, that's an awful existence, right? Why? Why have my great-great-granddaddy, if he did something, why am I paying for that? That doesn't make sense. What happens is that those inclinations get sewn in into our family ethos, right? And it kind of gets passed down, and, and it shows up, and we're no, no different than, than our fathers. But what does he say? What does God say? But if you confess, if you truly believe what is right, true belief, and you turn from these ways and you begin to walk with me, wait with me, and I will remember my covenant. And he doesn't just say, I'll remember my covenant. I will remember my covenant with Jacob, with Isaac, with Abraham. So as long as there's a generation of sin going this way that we are held, held accountable to, God runs right alongside with a generation of redemption from Jacob, Isaac to Abraham. What? And I looked at that and I was like, you are so good. Like, who am I? to even begin to look at this stuff, that God, right alongside of our iniquity and our generational sin, sets up a generation of redemption unto Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks be to God. So it matters what you believe, everybody. He is protecting and saving us from going down the same avenue as our Israelite brothers and sisters who did the same thing of idol worship. And you may be saying, well, I don't carve wooden images I don't set up stone altars. I don't do this idol thing. And, and hopefully that is true of you because if you are carving little um, witch doctor things, stop it. Don't do that. But our idols are different. We bring back that idea of syncretism. We blend things into our faith, don't we? We mix things up into it to make us look more fashionable in our surroundings, to not be called out. And so today, I, I lead us into making maybe an idol inventory of ourselves. Where have we created idols in our lives? Maybe with, even within the church. Where have we begun to draw our identity, our value, and our worth from anything other than Jesus Christ? Where have we done those things? Where have we forgotten the words of Paul that says, For I have been crucified with Jesus, and it is no longer that I who live, but Christ who lives within me, that my old self is gone and that our new self reigns with Christ. Where, where have we forgotten those things? Where are the idols in your lives that you're trying to get that self-worth from? Is it the office? Is it work? For success? For adoration? Is it the altar of, of procuring a family or having a family and having a spouse? 
for that, that idol of love and safety and adoration. And I pause here too because I remember being single at the age of 30 and reading scriptures where Paul says sometimes it's better to be single. And I said, oh gosh, Paul, please, no. No, not me. Like, I don't want that. And that, shame on me. I need to repent for that. Because that is an idol all in of itself. My value, my worth needs to come from Christ alone. And that's why whether I'm married or whether I'm not, I still have that identity, I still have that worth. We have to be careful. We learned this at the National Gathering. We have to be careful that as a church that we don't elevate marriage over singleness. Both are equal blessings. And not to be made an idol out of. Is it power and protection? So that you bow down to the idol of self-preservation? Is it sex and sexual temptation? Uh-oh, careful down to the idol of lust and pleasure. It's a technology and media, envy of, of, the, of the elite or laziness to just unplug and just whatever, mindlessly scroll. Is it public opinion so that we get the adoration from people and self-worth? And I'll add one more. I'm going to say it. Bold as I stand here, are you bowing down to politics? The syncretism of our politics marrying to our faith. They don't belong together in a synchronistic relationship. They are two very different things. Yes, your faith may impact what your politics are, but we cannot raise politics as the religion of the day. You have to be careful of that because it leads us into a belief system of idol worship that isn't of Christ. And when we're following something that isn't of Christ, we might as well lay down in front of the altar as scattered bones and death and dismay and all the things because that's where it leads. There's only one true way to the Father and that's through the true, one, holy Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It matters what you believe and it needs to matter to you just as it matters to God so that we are believing in the right way and being protected from what our sinful selves always find ourselves doing. So take that inventory and remember that Jesus went to the cross to pay for those things. And so you no longer have to give those things power. They don't have power anymore. You now stand with Christ if you profess a faith in him. And so lay those things down. Lay those idols down because you're not profaning some temple structure anymore. You're profaning your own heart where the Lord dwells now, where we worship and we find our true and identity and instruction when we go against him, we're profaning our own hearts. Don't do that. It matters what you believe. Let's pray. Don't forget the words of Paul. Don't forget that the generational act of redemption that came through God, through Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, carries on through Jesus Christ, who took on the cross for our sins. Remember that, that we don't, when we give power to our sins, we are just going backwards. And so remember that he took them on and paid the penalty for them so that we can lay them down at his feet and walk as new people, new creations in Christ, where we don't have to have the idols in our hearts taken over and leading us down to false worship and false belief. It matters what you believe. So in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's people said, amen. Have a great day.